Father, I pray you would open your word to us now and open our hearts to receive it. I pray you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. God, I pray you would open our ears, that you would dig open ears for us so that we would delight to do your will and grow in our understanding of it. And God, I pray that you would use uh, this passage of Scripture uh, as, as Brother Mike prayed, to make us more like your son Jesus uh, so that you would be more pleased with how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes 2, we'll look at just the last three verses of the chapter today. Now, I don't plan to preach the rest of Ecclesiastes in little three-verse chunks. But these verses are especially important. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, these three verses at the end of chapter 2 are a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following in the book, the principal conclusion, and in fact, the point of the whole book. If we study Ecclesiastes and we don't make much of these verses... We may be in danger of missing the whole point. These verses are the great conclusion of a great quest undertaken by a great king. The king was Solomon, son of David, and Solomon was the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful, most revered king that God's people had known. His quest, beginning in the middle of chapter 1, was a quest for the good life. So he, he realized everything in this present life was vanity, meaning it's like a vapor. Uh, this life under the sun is like breath on a cold day that appears suddenly and disappears just as suddenly and completely. At death, our, our lives here are like a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears, James 4 says. This life, all we have in it, it's fleeting. It's also full of frustrations. This is what Solomon means when he says, all that's done under the sun is vanity. And life is like this because we live in a fallen world. Man's sin against God earned the curse of God on this present creation, subjecting everything in it to a futility and death. Well, if that's the reality about this present world... Solomon, in this portion of the book, is asking, how then should we live in it? What is the good life? As much as that is possible under the sun. Or to ask that question using Solomon's own words in this book from Ecclesiastes 6, 12. What is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow? And last week, we heard Solomon's uh, personal testimony, essentially, uh, of his quest to answer that question. And he told us in great detail about the various ways that he sought satisfaction and lasting gain in this life. And he gave, him, gave himself to chasing wisdom and knowledge, uh, to chasing earthly pleasures and possessions and profits, and to chasing lasting earthly significance and achievements, and as he did all of that, he found time after time that chasing those things was chasing the wind, 
Repeatedly, we came across this phrase in chapters 1 and 2, striving after wind. You understand that picture? It's a picture of wearing yourself out on an ultimately pointless pursuit, running without rest at an unattainable goal. Satisfaction in these things. So if you decide that you're going to spend your life chasing earthly gain, more worldly wisdom or wealth or importance, you're striving after the wind. And Solomon's telling us that's the way to waste a life. What's the alternative? It's here in verses 24 through 26. This is the conclusion of Solomon's quest for the good life. Here's the better way to live. And the better way boils down to two big ideas. The first is enjoy the everyday gifts of God. Enjoy the everyday gifts of God. We'll spend most of our time today on this point. So look at verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better... Let that sink in. Nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So there's the great alternative to wasting your life. Enjoy your daily bread and your daily work. Instead of always striving after more, find joy in what you have each day. Be thankful and content with what God is giving you today. Now some may hear this and think, that's it? Nothing better? That's what Luther called the point of the book? A remarkable passage? Well, it's at least a big part of the point of this book, and it has to be because wise Solomon gives this counsel repeatedly in this book. Chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then 3.22, so I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Again, 5.18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy him and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 8.15. Again. He says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. 9.7, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Verse 9, enjoy life 
with the wife whom you love. And then 11, verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 11, 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And you thought Ecclesiastes was all pessimistic and glum. One commentary I found calls Ecclesiastes the Philippians of the Old Testament. And now you know why. Philippians is especially known as the epistle of joy. And Philippians 4.4 famously captures the sentiment, Rejoice in the Lord. Again I say rejoice. Well, Ecclesiastes says, I commend joy. And again and again it says, rejoice. Now, thinking of Ecclesiastes surprises us to think of it in this way because of the book's insistence that everything done under the sun is vanity, the vainest of vanities. All is vanity. I mean, does that sound like a joy-producing message? Life is hard, life is short, and when we die, we lose all the earthly gain for which we toiled. Well, that message can drive one to despair, and it did for Solomon at first. Go back to chapter 2, near the end of his quest, striving after earthly gain of various kinds. He said in chapter 2, verse 20, So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. So how did he turn the corner and have this truth lead him instead to profound joy? Verse 24, Solomon says, find enjoyment in your toil. But a few breaths earlier in verse 18, Solomon said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. How could there be such a stark change? In verse 24, he says, eat and drink and find enjoyment. But but earlier in chapter 2, Solomon had great food and drink. He had vineyards and fruit trees and herds and flocks. But he said in verse 17, I hated my life. How can Solomon still have the same work and the same food, but turn from hating his life and toil to instead finding joy in those everyday things of everyday life? And how can you? Think about this. Why? Why did Solomon say that he hated his toil and despaired over it? It's because he saw he was going to have to leave it all, that that it would be taken from him and, and left to another. Look back up at verse 18. Solomon said, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So he hated his work when he saw it would not provide any lasting earthly reward or significance. He he despaired over his work and wealth when it first hit him that one day God will say to him, this night your soul is required of you and all that you have laid up for yourself, whose will they be? Like, Like God said to the rich fool in the parable of Luke 12, but, but this initially despairing conclusion, when he made peace with it, became the truth that enabled him to enjoy his daily food and work and life. And here's how. Solomon found out that there is no ultimate satisfaction or lasting gain in any of these things, in, in wisdom, wealth, work, reputation in this world, 
And, and so he found if you're hoping in any of those things to satisfy you or to deliver lasting gain, then, then you'll end up despairing or even hating your life. You, fi- you find out those things can't give you what you're trying to get from them. But what if that realization helped you to actually stop trying to get from them what they cannot give? Well, then you could be free to seek satisfaction in the one who was giving you all of go- those good things. And then, if you did that, ironically, you would be free to actually enjoy all of those things for what they are instead of hating them for what they aren't. You could just enjoy them as passing away but present good gifts that are given to you by a good and all-satisfying God. It's astounding to realize when Solomon recounted his quest step by step from 116 all the way to 223, all the different things he strove after to gain, God was never mentioned a single time. But in these last three verses, where he shares with us the better way, God, or a pronoun referring to God, comes up, by my count, six times. When you view everyday life in reference to God, when you make God your all-satisfying and eternal good, then your heart is free. You don't have to make a God out of your work or your reputation, or or money, or sex, or possessions, or a spouse, or children, or ease, or any such thing. And, And you can just enjoy any of those things that you have for the temporary and limited blessings that they are when you have them. 1 Timothy 6.17, I think, strikes a a careful balance and, and puts it so beautifully. It says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides for us all things richly to enjoy. You see both sides of the coin there? Present joy in present passing away things can come when you stop expecting that they might provide what God only can. You know, there's a really striking, um, somewhat bizarre, but, but startling narrative in the Old Testament of, of a man who desperately wanted to, to uh, gain for himself this, this woman. I don't even remember what it's in, but it says he made himself sick. He so longed to have this woman as his wife. I'm sorry I didn't write it down. I wish I could give you the names. It's in there, though, okay? And, and even his friend came up and asked him, what's wrong with you? Why are you sick? And he told him, well, it's because I want this girl. And so they devised this plan to, to uh, sin in order to, have, to deliver this, this lady to this man. And he, he sinned in awful ways. And you know what it says after he did that, after he gained her? It says that he hated her in a way that was stronger than the love for which he had her at first. When you stop trying to lean on the things of the earth to give you ultimate satisfaction, you're free to enjoy them. I heard an interview with a pastor a couple of years ago who spoke about his experience uh, being diagnosed with cancer 
and was very likely going to take his life. And he found that this reality that, that he was going to die soon, the reality that all of life is vanity, it actually enabled him to enjoy the everyday gifts of God more than he ever had. And here's what he said. He said, what's happened with the cancer, it's that suddenly we realize we can't make a heaven out of this earth because it's going to be taken away from us. And it just jolts you so much. And you say, I've got to make heaven my heaven and God my heaven. And here's what's really weird. When you actually make heaven heaven, the joys of earth are more poignant than they used to be. That's what's so strange. We enjoy our day more than we ever did. The more we make heaven into the real heaven, the more this world becomes something we're actually enjoying for its own sake. Instead of trying to make it give us more than it really can. And so oddly enough, we've never been happier. We've never enjoyed our days more. We've never enjoyed food more. We've never enjoyed the actual things around us more. Why? The answer is we got our hearts off of those things, and so, weirdly enough, we enjoy them more. Isn't that what King Solomon is commending, what he also found? If you hope to get, to, to get from your everyday blessings what only God can give, then you'll always be stuck just chasing more and, and vainly striving after wind. And you're also setting yourself up to waste life chasing the wind if you see these everyday provisions and responsibilities as things ultimately that you've gained for yourself. And that's another key insight in this conclusion that's repeated throughout the book. If these everyday blessings like food and work and simple joy in it, it, these are not ultimately, Solomon says, what your hands have gained but what God's hand has given And we can detect this shift, I think, in Solomon's quest. Verse 11 of chapter 2, Solomon said, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. But the end of verse 24, he said, about food and drink and enjoyment in his toil, that this is from the hand of God. And in verse 25, seals that point further. Apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? So, so one commentator put it neatly in, in saying that the message of Ecclesiastes here is, life is gift, not gain. Life is gift, not gain. That's the better life, to see your, your present life, not fundamentally as an opportunity to chase personal gain, but as an opportunity to cherish divine gifts. And you need to consider this carefully and frequently, often. These everyday blessings that you have, whose hands secured them for you, ultimately? Did your hands get them? Well, then life is gain, and you better start striving to get more, to keep more. Or ultimately, did God's hands give these to you? Well, then life is gift, and you better start enjoying it. If you don't enjoy the gifts, doesn't that in some way dishonor the giver? 1 Timothy 6, God richly provides for us all things to enjoy. If you give someone a gift and they say, why thank you? You say, or at least think, you're welcome. I hope you 
enjoy it, right? Gifts are meant to be enjoyed. And Ecclesiastes says daily bread and daily work are his gifts. Now, if you view life as gain, then these everyday blessings you have are free to be despised or just used as tools uh, by which you chase future personal gain and satisfaction. But if your daily bread and work are gifts from God, then you even have a, a kind of moral obligation to find enjoyment in them and to be thankful to Him for them. We shouldn't, we shouldn't receive our daily bread and our daily work from His hand and, and say or think, well, this is a terrible gift. God sees our thoughts. We, we shouldn't say or think, is this it? What you're giving me today? Why do we think we deserve more than what God graciously provides? It honors God to enjoy with contented hearts His everyday gifts, food, drink, work, and the rest. So, note this. This is important too. And I hope you didn't get this message from the last sermon I gave, but, but when Ecclesiastes teaches we shouldn't chase ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world, that that's not meant to lead us to the error of asceticism, which is just to keep oneself from the joys and pleasures in earthly things. That, that's not it. Receiving the everyday things as gifts from God is actually meant to lead us to maximum joy in those things. It's, it's, it does that especially as we learn to receive the everyday gifts of God from God, and so we look at the gift and trace it back to the source, to God Himself, who is the eternal and all-satisfying good. And, and so when we do that, when we view life, our everyday blessings as gifts from God, our work, <clears throat> our, our food, well, then our daily bread and our daily work become opportunities for joyful communion with God, the giver. So I, I guess you could say, in a sense, that these daily blessings are means to a greater end, but that greater end is not some kind of future, further earthly gain. The greater end is present communion with the God who is the present giver of these present things. So Ecclesiastes isn't commending asceticism as the alternative to chasing gain, and neither is it commending just you know, simple living in and of itself. The, the biblical alternative to chasing the wind is not a materialistic minimalism that even unbelievers could adopt. That's not the point. It's commending a heart posture of joyful receiving from God all things present. So let your food, let your drink, let your work, let every everyday blessing of God draw you into thankful communion with God. And that's the way to enjoy all these things most. That's the better way. And there's only one way to live that way. There's only one way to have loving communion with God in all things, and that is to trust and follow His Son, Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection frees us from our sins so we can know and enjoy God as the giver of every good gift.
like our daily bread and work. Okay, so, so now to press this uh, vision of the better life more deep into your mind, I want you to think again about the rich man in Christ's parable in Luke 12, the, the one to whom God said, you fool. Okay, what was his folly? Remember this. He viewed life as his chance to chase personal gain. And so he strove to, to, to hoard up all this stuff to be able to tell himself one day, Oh my soul, you have laid up for yourself ample goods for many years. Now, right, finally, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He needed the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. He should have learned from Solomon. He doesn't have many years left. None of us have many years. This life is a vapor. And so, Ecclesiastes would say, he should have been eating and drinking and being merry all along and finding regular rest all along and finding enjoyment in each day's toil all along by receiving it as gifts from God each day all along. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, this, this sounds, honestly, it sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish. It, this, this sounds kind of naive about how difficult work really is in this world. I mean, oh, just find enjoyment in your toil. Yeah, okay, well, my job stinks. Well, we might think that this counsel is naive if we forget. It says, coming in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's already told us that our work is hard and sometimes fruitless, wearisome, full of frustrations. And at the beginning of his, his, his great quest for the good life, he called all our earthly toil an unhappy business. That's verse 13, an unhappy business or a grievous task. So if that's the case, how do we find enjoyment in it exactly? I, I told you part of it already. Receive it as a gift of God. Chase thankful communion with God in it. But, but here's also part of the answer. You need to see even the difficulties of daily labor as part of the gift of God. Verse 13, chapter 1, put it that way. It said, I applied my heart. <clears throat> verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Our daily work is an unhappy business because of, again, the, the curse of God on the earth because of man's sin. But for believers, that comes as an expression of his fatherly discipline toward us for our good. If you're in Christ, everything that comes to you from God's hand comes from a fatherly hand of love including the difficulties of your daily work. So if your daily work is a divine gift, Christian, then even the unhappy business parts of it are part of the gift. The toilsome nature of your work, the, the fleeting nature of what it gains you, it, it's not a weapon God is using against you. It's a gift by which He's aiming at your good. So a Christian can receive daily work with contented thanksgiving, even with all of the grief and the frustrations and the vanities baked into it, because it's a gift of God, and so he must have good 
in mind for us by it. And you could translate verse 24, some of your Bibles may do this, instead of find enjoyment in your toil, as see good in your toil. And your Bible, uh, like mine does, may have a footnote telling you this. The verse could be translated as, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and make his soul see good in his toil. That's a good line to remember when you find it difficult to find enjoyment in your daily toil. Make your soul see good in it. Look for the good God might be doing to you by it. Is that not reason for joy? Look for the good God might be doing to others through you by it. Is that not reason for joy? And can you see any good that God is doing to you or through you precisely because your work this day is particularly difficult? Enjoy the everyday gifts of God. Make your soul see good in your toil. And when that's really hard to see because your work is really hard, then especially then you need to look at your toil through the lens of God's promises in Scripture, view it with the eyes of faith, believe that God's promises are still good this day with respect to your work, His promises concerning all of His good purposes for His people in their suffering and trials. And actually, the next verse we're going to look at now in Ecclesiastes 2 gives us a, a couple more good promises for you to trust that, that can help you find enjoyment in your toil even when it is a particularly unhappy business. And we'll hear that at the end. Uh, but first, in this last verse, we also will find a second major piece of counsel that teaches us further the way not to waste our lives chasing gain. The better way is... Enjoy the everyday gifts of God, verses 24 and 25, and aim to please God with patient hope. That's from verse 26, which says, For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So this is what is good for man. While he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow, what is good is pleasing God. The good life has that as its goal, to, to please the gracious God who richly provides for us all things to enjoy. And the Apostle Paul, maybe you remember, said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He said, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord. And, and do you remember there in 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul said to explain why he always makes that his aim. He said, we make it our aim to please Him for... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, that's Ecclesiastes too, isn't it? Do you remember the very last verse of Ecclesiastes? That the final reason that grounds all of the wisdom in this book, Ecclesiastes 12:14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or 
or evil. So a thousand years before, Paul said that he made it his aim to please God because he knew we'll all stand before God in judgment. King Solomon taught us to have the same aim and for the same reason. When all humanity stands before Jesus Christ and all of their deeds are exposed and all of the motives of their heart are exposed and judged, then we will see who has lived the good life, who has made it their aim to please Him. But note verse 26 is not just telling us how we can have a happy eternity later. Solomon is also, remember, telling us how to to live well now here under the sun. So again, the first half of verse 26 says, the one who pleases God, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, last word there is actually the one translated pleasure at the beginning of chapter 2. So this, this is really striking. Solomon uses some of the same words he did to describe what he was chasing earlier when he was chasing the wind, and now those words come up again in this conclusion to describe the benefits of the better way. But, but here, they're not goals that Solomon is striving to gain. They're gifts that God is giving him. So, Solomon wasted some of life chasing wisdom and knowledge and pleasure without reference to God. But in the end, he found that God gives those things to the one who pleases him. So when you give your heart to chasing wisdom and pleasure as your ultimate goal, as your ultimate satisfaction, you'll end up empty. You're striving after end. But if you give your heart to pleasing God and making that your ultimate goal and satisfaction, then God will give you wisdom and pleasure in pleasing Him. That's an important connection between Solomon's prior quest and this conclusion. There's also an important connection between just just the two verses right before it and this this last one of chapter 2, where Solomon's describing the better way. Verse 26, God gives joy to the one who pleases him. Verse 24, find enjoyment in your toil. Verse 25, apart from him who can have enjoyment, God gives joy. Okay, connect these things. The, The good life as good as life can be under the sun, is is found in enjoying the everyday gifts of God. But now we see even that joy is itself a gift of God, given to the one who pleases God. So actually to experience the good life of verses 24 and 25, to actually do that, to find enjoyment in your daily bread and daily work, you also need the daily gift of God that is the power to enjoy His other everyday gifts. And if that's given to the one who pleases God, then the way to find enjoyment in your toil is to make it your aim to please God in your toil. Aim to please God in the way that that you receive your everyday gifts from Him, and that is how you will come to enjoy them more and more. If you make pleasing God your great ambition in every situation, you may find yourself. This is so important and so practical. 
that you find enjoyment in your toil and in the things of everyday life by aiming to please God in it. And in part of the joy of that, I think, comes that when you work with that aim, you're always aiming at a goal that's actually attainable in all of your work. And you can't say uh, that about much in life under the sun, work under the sun. Uh, well, it, it's, it's at least always attainable for those who are trusting in Christ and, and have the Spirit of Christ in them, which, which you have all the way for free simply by trusting Christ. If you do, this is something you can always do. I mean, Christian, when your work is a really unhappy business, can you still please God in it? Yes, every time. If your work is full of frustrations and failures and futility tomorrow, can you still go about it in a way that pleases God? Yes, all day, every day, abiding in Christ. So if pleasing God is your ultimate goal, if pleasing God is the measuring stick you use, to assess whether or not each day's work is an ultimate success, well, then you can be content and find enjoyment in your toil each day. So, so here's another just pearl of wisdom that is so beautiful that, that we don't, are not to use our daily work to chase some kind of future gain or reputation, but... but we are to do our work just to please God in the present. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Well, you know what today has brought. Enjoy it by aiming to please God today. Live today with God's pleasure in mind. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And Ecclesiastes is teaching us that if you do that, that's actually how you find maximum joy in your eating and drinking and whatever you're doing. You were made for this. Why did God make you in all things? Or is glory? You will make your soul see good in your toil when you can see God's good pleasure in the way you're going about it. That, that begs another question, though, doesn't it? I mean, how can you see that? How, how can you please God in your daily toil? Well, for one, he's pleased when you treat it like it truly is his gift to you, when you are thankful to him for it, and you are seeking enjoyment in it, in, in communion with him, because it's his gift. And you can especially know that God is pleased by your toil when you're going about it in accordance with his commands. And seeking to do his will for his glory and, and for his good pleasure as he commands. And, and this is always, always how our Lord Jesus went about his toil. When he lived on this earth under the sun in our flesh, Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the one who sent me. And God said about him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What is pleasing to God is being like Christ. And Jesus lived to do the will of God. John 
speaking of enjoying your daily bread, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. to, To treat each day like that. Have you treated each day like that? You haven't. Never, perfectly, not from the heart, with all your heart, uh, you and I have sinned and, and, in fact, displeased God many times. So that makes us uncomfortable. Where do we actually fit in verse 26? I mean, the verse speaks of two people. There's the sinner and there's the one who is good before God. When verse 26 talks about the one who pleases God, uh, the, the Hebrew more literally is the one who is good before God. To the one who is good before him, God gives wisdom and joy. But to the sinner, God gives the business of gathering for the one who's good before God. Well, there's only ever been one man who fully deserved the title, good before God. There's only been one man who had no share in the title, sinner. It's the man who said, Someone greater than Solomon is here, speaking about himself, the Lord Jesus. He was God the Son incarnate. But in him, there is good news of grace for sinners. He, he didn't just come to show us the standard of pleasing God that we all fall short of. He came to be the Savior of sinners, to, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us, to be representative righteousness, representative goodness for us. Before God, his sinless life before God, his death for our sins against God, his resurrection from the dead to God, that work of his is what makes possible for all of his people to be considered good before God. Because his death scrubs all of the stains of evil and sin away from everyone who trusts in him. And his perfect record of perfectly pleasing righteousness in all of his earthly toil is credited to the one who trusts in him. You cannot strive to gain your own goodness before God. That's another way to waste your life chasing the wind. But you can receive as another and greatest gift from God the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. And you can receive as a gift from God forgiveness for all your sins by His blood and His death. You only need to turn away from your sins in your heart and to rest in what Christ has done as counting as yours. Wonderfully, then, those who are united to Christ by this faith in Him, they receive the gift of everyday communion with God. They receive the gift of the Spirit of Christ who works in the Christian to give us the power that we need to actually start living like Christ more ourselves so we really can live in a way that pleases God more and more progressively in this life especially as we continue to trust in what Christ did, which continues to scrub away the stains of all our good works. So God looks at our imperfect good works in Christ and says, those are good before me. Those please me. 
That's the good life. The good life is living as one who is good before God. And this is God's gift to us in Christ, by the Spirit. Now, to conclude, to wrap this up, we need to deal with the last half of verse 26. So, so we've seen God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one who pleases Him. What does God give to the man who does not? Everyone outside of Christ. It says, to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, that's really something. I mean, Solomon's told us that, that all earthly gain is taken from man at death. He, he toils working and gathering and collecting, but in the end, he, he loses it all that he earned and laid up for himself. But this verse is saying that all that gain is not just lost by the sinner, that actually one day it will be transferred to the one who pleases God. Wow. I mean, Solomon said the same thing in a few of his Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Proverbs 28, 8. Whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit, loan shark kind of stuff, he is multiplying his wealth to gather it for him who is generous to the poor. One who pleases God in that way. And how about Job 27, 16 and 17? It says, Though a wicked man heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it. And the innocent will divide the silver. So that's, that's where I'm getting that little line in our second point, with patient hope. Aim to please God with patient hope. This verse tells us there's something for believers to wait for and to patiently hope to receive in the future while we aim to please God in the present, in our toil. And that hope is to receive as a great gift from God on the last day in the eternal age what sinners have gathered and collected. The sinners strive to gain riches and lands and bounties of the earth, but in the end, that's vanity and striving after the wind because they aren't the ones who are going to inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth, the ones who are like Christ. Psalm 37 teaches evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. See? Make it your aim today just to please God today, but in patient hope that one day you will inherit the earth. Everything will belong to those who please God. Now, how do we understand this? Again, the key is Christ. Because Christ is the one who above all pleases God. And Christ will inherit the nations. Uh, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into his kingdom. Christ will inherit all. The sinner is today only gathering and collecting what will one day be given to Christ. What a waste to spend life toiling without belonging to Christ. 
But here's the amazing thing. Those who are united to Christ are united to Him, not just in His righteous life and His sacrificial death. They're also united to Christ in His inheriting all things. The Bible says believers are co-heirs with Him. Christ shares all His inheritance. He shares His gain with His bride. All the people that He saved. So 1 Corinthians 3.21 says, All things are yours, Christian. Whether Paul or Apollos or the world, or life or death or present or the future, all are yours. How? You are Christ's. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, He had nothing, yet possessed everything. Why? Because he made it his aim to please God, and he did in Christ. And so he knew he was a co-heir with Christ of all things. Friends, don't waste your life. Embrace this better way. Belong to the one who was wiser than Solomon, to Jesus. This, this is what is good and fitting for you to do during these few days God has given you in life under the sun. There is nothing better than this. Enjoy the everyday gifts of God and aim to please God in patient hope. God, help us to live this way, please, for your glory and for your glory in our joy of all the things you freely give us and richly give us, especially of those most precious things that you have gained for us and given to us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.